Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us each Friday here for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, good morning to you, Malcolm. Nice to speak with you, sir. Uh, a lot of news out there. And, you know, I know I've been doing a lot of feel-good news stories recently, especially in light of the excuse me, period of time of uh, Yom Atzmaut and Yom Yerushalayim coming up, and we've spoken a lot. Thank God, over the last couple of weeks about some of the feel-good stories. And there's a lot happening that's not feel-good out there, but I'm going to start with this feel-good story this week. It is amazing to me, and I think I joked or alluded to it last week. It is amazing to me when in discussion about this terrible tragedy of the kidnapping of the Christian girls in Nigeria, I was, again, somewhat tongue-in-cheek recommending the Israelis get in there and solve the problem, but there are national personalities out there that are actually in, in a very serious form saying that the only ones who can go in there and solve this are the Americans and or the Israelis. Put that into the context of history, Malcolm. Who could have imagined a few decades ago that people would think the place to turn to to save young girls in a remote part of the world would be the state of Israel? Well, unfortunately, Israel's had a lot of experience uh, forced upon it, not because it wanted it, but because of uh, where it is and, and uh, because of the responsibilities it has uh, to the, its citizens. It is uh, most regrettable that this situation has developed as it is. I mean, it, it is a, a potential tragedy, but we don't know how many other people have been kidnapped before. Uh, this was done on a dramatic scale. It was meant to send a message, and it's been highlighted in the international press, but it isn't new. Boko Haram, this group, has been around for a long time, and for many years the U.S., the Europeans, didn't want to declare them a terrorist entity and a terrorist group. Uh, we have uh, a fleet of drones sitting in Niger, which could have been implemented and used to track, uh, even though it's you know difficult because of the setting and the forestry, and you're talking about huge country and huge uh, uh, amount of land, but it, 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 it isn't that, that we couldn't have, that the international community couldn't have done something more, and certainly the government of uh, Nigeria could have done more. And the fact that they turned to Israel, even though many people are reluctant, many countries are reluctant to accept assistance, they often accept guidance or do it quietly uh, from Israel, uh, because Again, the expertise, if you remember when the Kenyan, right. the attack in Kenya, many other Do you places. think Israel's playing a secret role right now? What I, I, well, I know that they have been in touch with the government of Nigeria. So there's no question that they're somewhat involved. And even the U.S., in situations like this, would turn to Israel. They would never go ahead and, uh, and, and you know, uh, turn to a smaller country when, of course, it's, you know, the great world superpower of the United States that's supposed to be taking care of these things. Well, you know that in, in a lot of areas of foreign aid, countries, including the United States, turn to Israel because Israel's experience in things like post-harvest reclamation or uh, agriculture, water preservation um, uh, and reclamation in uh, solar energy and many other areas, because Israel's experience is a smaller country and uh, in its particular circumstance, uh, in what did the Paris always call it, the desertification, right. uh, <laughs> that that they have experience that no other country has. Uh, when we took these, uh, the central bankers from six African countries, they said at the end of the trip, you can keep Europe, even the United States, just give us Israel because their experience is so relevant. And what they have developed in so many areas is so pertinent to the problems being faced by other countries as well. Right. So just think if Israel 
all these stupid boycotts and these other things, how yep. many people would benefit, how much the Arab world could benefit from Israel. And quietly, they are from Israeli high-tech inventions, from many of the advances in, in agriculture, in water, etc. Oh, if they'd let Israel peacefully just continue to develop, it's amazing what it could provide for the world. And again, just to emphasize, when I said feel-good story, obviously it's a tragic story, a horrible story, a terrible story, but the feel-good part is the Jewish pride, the Israeli pride that, uh, that you know, when you look back, like I say, compared to decades ago or centuries ago, you look back and, and look who the leader of the world is when it comes to episodes like this and trying to solve them. It's pretty amazing. Um, well, one of the not feel good stories of the week, of course, is the sentencing of former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert. Uh, I think, based on the way you've examined this for us, you would not have been surprised by the sentence, right? It was essentially within the guidelines that the judge was dealing with to begin with, correct? Correct. And, uh, and we'll see yet. Uh, he, he will be appealing his sentence, and the outcome, you know, will, will probably be months off. Do you think it'll be any different? Well, they could reduce the sentence. There are a lot of people pressing for him to have community service. Uh, people say, you know, that he, he has to be in isolation there because, for one thing, he has state secrets. Secondly, he'd be obviously a target. And uh, they're talking about a, a wing and where other people just from the case would be or people who have been uh, vetted would be allowed to, to be in the same area. But the question is whether he'll, he'll be required to start serving the sentence now, or do, do they wait until the uh, appeal? I think that they put it off now till September uh, before he would have to go to start serving his term. Can I uh, assume that since his indictment all the way back then, you've had at least one or two private conversations with him? Well, I have, but I was also called to testify in the case, so I had direct involvement uh, in it, and uh, it was minor, and uh, did not impact the outcome, I think, but it was, uh, it, it, you know, I saw the setting, and frankly, it was not the most serious uh, court case I've ever seen. Um, the, the other thing is, of course, you know, that the fact that uh, Sheila Zakin uh, yeah. turned on him, and that says that she has much more information yet to come. I don't know if in an appeal they can introduce nor new information, uh, but you remember that you saw that she was sentenced to 11 months in right. prison. Uh, as part of a plea bargain. So she thinks that she can get even that reduced? She will not get I don't think she she will get that. Even with whatever information she, she has. a plea bargain, so they accepted it, but it doesn't mean she served all the 11. Right. Uh, but she point. signed a plea bargain with the prosecution just before the judge was to announce the verdict in the trial, and she turned state's evidence, so she got a reduction in sentence, and... Um, and, and the you know this is related to the Polanski Rishon tours everything else too it's, it's as you said not the uh, not the uh, best story out there um, and then toss in the other news story this week on this side of the world yes. of people in the Jewish community accused of uh, funneling twelve and a half million dollars from a special education fund and it was quite a week you'd have to say right well, unfortunately it was it was only one case and uh, there's too much and there has to be some reckoning yeah that's for sure by the way the reason i asked about private conversations with Olmert is someone mentioned to me that he was confident he would again become prime minister of israel now i assume that would be impossible but do you but can you without revealing too much of the private conversation can you can you verify that that it's likely yeah. that he, he really thought he'd be prime minister again in the beginning of the trial after he got off on 
several of the charges. He was convinced, I think, that he would get off on this. Sometimes you become arrogant, which is what leads to doing these acts. Right. Uh, sometimes necessity may, may uh, generate it, uh, a motivation to, to cut the corners or to take actions, and you get deeper and deeper into it. Um, I, I can tell you that I dealt with him hundreds of times during his tenure as, as mayor, inviting him to New York, having him here, and he never asked for anything, ever, ever. So, and many other people have expressed the same uh, thing. So here you have a case that develops. I guess the opportunity presented itself uh, for significant uh, uh, remuneration for, for facilitating the developments uh, pro project at the Holy Land, and, uh, and they succumbed to it. But I think certainly he believed early on that he was going to be exonerated and would come back to head one of the parties wow. and uh, be prime minister again. Was that your testimony, by the way? He never asked for anything ever? Was that the essential part of your testimony? That was an essential part of my testimony. <laughs> That's why they summoned me, because originally it was the police that asked me. But that would be the uh, soundbite from the I testimony. I would say that was the soundbite. <laughs> All right. Um, the trip to Japan that the Prime Minister of Israel uh, took, uh, how significant was it uh, a week later? Well, he's still there. He's still traveling. Oh, he's still in Japan? He's returned way back, actually. Wow. Uh, today. Man knows how to vacation. <laughs> it's no vacation, believe me. It works very hard in, when he travels, uh, and, and this was a very important visit. Japan is a critical country, and the fact that they could uh, hold this press conference and identify the common challenges the two countries face from hostile enemies and said that they would work together um, on defense security and other issues. Uh, Japan is still an economic powerhouse. Its, it's um, developments in high-tech and, and other areas are uh, certainly coincident with uh, Israel's development. What was the security comparison he made? He said, we have Iran, and you have, what was it, North Korea? North Korea? I think it was North Korea, North Korea. and the, the challenge of the islands, you know, right. where they're being threatened. So, the, uh, and the, uh, so they talked about the common challenges and opportunities and experience, again, that Israel has to offer. It is part of that remarkable story that you allude to that people don't know, don't want to hear about, but countries look and say this country this little country is going to be water sufficient maybe the first to reach the status as it is without the natural resources it's going to be energy sufficient it's going to it is certainly um, pioneering the way in security and in high-tech areas and it becomes very desirable unbelievable the whole thing is incredible you would say now and again, I don't know if there's a way to evaluate this. Israel has a better relationship with China than with Japan, or vice versa, or the two are so dissimilar that you couldn't even compare? They're not, they're not comparable. It's a, it's a different relationship. The relationship with China is becoming more and more intense. The number of visitors from China went up 30% this year, wow. along this past year. And the, the, um, the intensity of the relationship between in the high-tech sector, where much of the manufacturing for the products that Israel is developing is taking place in China. And every week you have delegations from China coming to invest, to, to, uh, to get into the, to, to um, partner with Israeli uh, high-tech companies and others. It's a, it's a remarkable story. Unbelievable. And the Chinese people, by the way, you know, see themselves as the Jews of China. They, there are Judaic studies departments in many of the major universities in China. Talmud. Yes, they do not look Jewish. Right, but <laughs> Talmud is a big... Uh... So that's Korea. Oh, is that Talmud? Korea? 
uh, was uh, 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 put in hotel rooms, Man. and uh, you have a, a Talmud hotel, in fact. But the point is, they're saying, look how the Jews have what they've accomplished is that. What's the secret? The secret is the Talmud. It is true in other countries also, but sometimes it's presented in the most nefarious way and others in a positive way. And if they knew what was really in the Talmud, they would all be celebrating it. Mm, good point. I can't keep track of my countries anymore, Malcolm. I'm, I'm in such a rut, you can't imagine. Uh, I, yes, I can. Last week, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> La, last, <laughs> last week I said Ehud Barak said that Israel could knock out Iran in a day when it was really the U.S. Yesterday I asked President Richard Joel about the fencing team instead of the tennis team that made the national headlines with the NCAA and the postponement for Shabbos. I'm completely off my game. No, you were predicting. That's what it was? I tell you, I'm in such a rut. I don't know what mistakes I may make in the rest of this conversation. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9. On the FM dial and around the world in the web, jmnam.org. You you saw the um, dismantling of Malay Rechavam this week. Does it when it comes down to the you know the small towns that try to develop and you know people move in and and we essentially know how it works. I'm sure you've toured many of the places like I have. Um, is it does it basically come down to whether there was permission, whether there was um, you know a permit granted to go ahead? and set things up, or depending on the situation, it could be a lot more complicated than that. Look, all these situations are very complicated, very sensitive, arouse all sorts of reactions and concerns, but the law is the law, and it has to be upheld, but it has to be upheld universally. And, you know, we had the case of, of Palestinians rioting, and, in fact, today you have the funeral of two of them, and everybody's right. on high alert in, right. uh, in the area because of it. Uh, so government has a responsibility to, to uphold the law and suit people, and that leads to situations like this when you have a clash of different perceptions of what what is really required for Israel security. But legally, is it usually just a permit issue? And if they if people were able to prove that they were permitted to be there, you know, their lawyers could go in and, and argue the case and get permission, or is it... Or there's so many other factors, militarily, the neighbors, the reaction. There's so much else that every situation is completely different. Well, these things should all be taken into account. But it's it's not just what a court orders. It's what the, the government zoning requires. It's what um, security can, can uh, accord. Right. You know, you have to protect the, these communities as well. So, yes, there are other considerations. But, uh, you know, it's an un certainly an unpleasant and uh, Seen to see when you have to send in Israeli troops to remove Jews from the right, but as you've always that said, that arouses a lot of reaction. Yeah, of course. But as you've always said, anyone who thinks that uh, it's a very that's a simplistic situation, think again because it's very complicated. Um, you know, there's an election in Syria coming up on June third. Yes, I do, and uh, I could make a wild prediction about who the winner will be. You could win a bundle in Vegas on this one. Uh, I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> but they pay you in the Syrian currency, which is not worth very much. The, um, look, Syria today is going through the, the still the chevle, uh, of, the, of the, all of the things of the revolution, all of the problems and all of the pangs and pains of the revolution, even though we don't read about it so much. There have been major, major developments you know, there's a city, Raqqa, which we talked about because it's it's in northern Syria and key to some of the oil regions. And the uh, ISIS, the Islamic uh, um, in Iraq and Syria, which is really uh, a Nusra type group, um, 
has created training facilities, infrastructure for foreign terrorist operate, operatives, where they're training people, and the belief amongst a lot of security people is that we're going to see the results as they target outside the Middle East. There's already several plots that have been uncovered. You see the use of the chlorine gas, and now it turns out that these may be coming from Iran that purchased 10,000 canisters uh, from from China. The, the The fact that the the government has consolidated its position in many areas and reports that, that Iran is recruiting thousands of people from Afghanistan now, guys who fought in Afghanistan, and they're paying them $500 a month and offering them residence in, in Iran for going to fight in, uh, in, in Syria. And you've had uh, many uh, reassessments about how we have approached this whole issue of Syria from the beginning. Uh, you know, France arrested six jihadists yesterday, and they admitted that they have 300 in Syria, French citizens fighting in Syria, 130 in transit, and I think they said another 130 who have returned. Now, you know how long I, I've talked about this yep. on the air and try to... And, and not just France. You said multiple countries will... Working, uh, right, on many European countries right. and the United States, and you see then this kind of, of uh, admission on the part of the government of France, but you can replicate it all over Europe and the United States, and they travel with U.S. and European passports. Where in the United States? All over the United States. Including where they're the... coming from? There was a group from Calgary, Canada, yesterday. They admit that a group went, and they were too late to stop them, but they said that this is as Canadian as, as maple syrup and as American as apple pie to join this, the Syrian revolution. They're going there as, as some, with some ideological motivation, but they're coming back as trained jihadists, trained killers. And the, uh, I saw Fabius, the foreign minister of of France this week uh, speaking here said that the U.S., France, the U.K. all erred in not taking the military action that had been planned to strike in the Damascus region. You remember uh, two, uh, two years ago when they could have, a year ago when they could have uh, um, acted and uh, we reached an accord over the, the chemical weapons. But in fact, much of the chemical weapon infrastructure remains in the, and Syria has not destroyed it. And the, they, they still retain a percentage of the chemical weapons and are using now the, the, um, the chlorine gas. And the point is that, that while they try to, we, we, we try to believe and we hope that all these arrangements are, are leading to a more stable situation, the fact is that it won't. And, and Assad uh, is going to win. There's no doubt that, that he's going to uh, be reelected. And many people believe that's probably the best thing because you can't imagine now uh, Syria uh, coming into even a greater degree of of instability, or where increasingly the extremists of Al Qaeda and other groups are dominating the rebel uh, efforts. You know, I got to ask you a question. I mentioned to you off the air that Albert Alaham, owner of Reserve Cut, was here this week. So he, he when he when they left Syria in 1999, 7,500 Jews left, and that was it. There were no essentially no Jews left. You know, he says now maybe a handful are left in the country. So let's say, for argument's sake, it's the same number that are now in Iran. Why is it that that effort in the late 90s was successful to convince Syrian Jews to finally get out, and the efforts today or in the last few years to convince the same Iranian Jews fails? Well, the situations are never completely comparable. And remember, for for many years, the Syrian Jews didn't have the ability and through efforts that we were all engaged in for many years on behalf of the Syrian Jews and the intervention of the American government, which we uh, arranged, 
that the opportunity presented itself, and you have a state of Israel that was able to take them, and they could move quickly across the border. There were ways uh, for them to, to get out. When uh, I visited Syria right before the fighting, and another Alahem, Joey Alahem, was involved, went there to look at the, at the synagogues, and uh, there had been a commitment from the government right, to right. refurbish the synagogues and right. rebuild them, and unfortunately today many of them are, are, have been taken over by rebels and others uh, in difficult uh, situations. But the, the, there were a few Jews there, and they said, look, our life is good, we have no reason to leave. And people could go back and forth. People, Syrian Jews who had left, would go back. Some had businesses, some still had property there, etc. In Iran, you know, there's, there's such a long tradition, there's such a long history, and people feel very Iranian. Jews feel Iranian. Even Jews who come here retain that cultural identity and, and speak Farsi and teach their children, and they... they Retain that culture, which is, uh, I'm not being critical. I'm, right. I think it's, it's a fact right. how they've done it. Right. But people are reluctant in every circumstance to leave because of the difficulties that they will face, and the immigration process is not always easy. Uh, second of all, they, they, they get nothing for their property, for what they have, and many elderly people, especially, or poor, feel what will they face, at least in the, their circumstances. They have medical care, they, they know where they are, they don't know where they're going to go. What's so, the circumstance they will so until they get to that, if I don't get out now moment, you know, until they get to that stage, yes. a lot of people will not move. And unfortunately, it, it's human nature. I don't think it's just Jewish right. human nature, but Jews have faced this repeatedly. Many Jews in Germany didn't want to believe it, didn't want to get out. That, and, until then, they can't get out. Right. And the ones that did felt that it, that it was that moment, that if I don't get it now. Right. To, to recognize and overcome the resistance that is natural on the part of people, and I know that you know Iranian Jews have, uh, are aware of it. And they are you still in close contact with community leaders in Iran? I don't want to talk about it. All righty. Um, I read that there is an, an amazing increase in ultra nationalist parties in Europe. It's hard for me to believe that in 2014 it's any different than it was 30 or 40 years ago in European parliaments. Am I right or wrong? First of all, you're right. This is a very uh, disturbing and and worrisome situation. Um, we've tried to address it for a long time, both with our European counterparts and just this past week with the leaders of the French Jewish community and then yesterday with the people from the Ukraine and from other countries uh, in Europe, uh, where you have, as you said, European parliamentary elections coming up. It is possible that these extremist parties could get 20%, even 25% by some predictions. I think it will be a little lower of the vote. In, could, in countries like? Like, well, you have Jovic in Hungary, you have Golden Dawn in, in, um, in Greece, you have in, in France the Le Pen. You have in many countries, Gerald uh, Wilders in, in Holland. They're not all the same. They don't hold the same views. There are different degrees of, of anti-Semitism. But wasn't it the same in the 60s and 70s? Well, you had them, but first of all, they weren't as vocal. They didn't play the same role, and they're playing on the instability, economic and other instabilities in these countries, like Greece, which has gone through this terrible period. And the government of Greece, by the way, which has been outstanding, both in their relations with Israel, with Jews, their efforts to, to clamp down on Golden Dawn in Hungary, we see a much more mixed record. While they denounce the anti-Semitism, the fact is that officials of Jobbik are now getting into key positions. And the, the, uh, in each country, it is different, but the trend is very disturbing. And if they could form, they, they can't be a block because they're different parties, and I think the differences, but they could 
be an informal block or, 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 and vote on issues that would introduce these radical ideas and, and positions into, the, into the Europe, we've seen these trends. The growth of anti-Semitism, the study that was released, and people can disagree, agree on different aspects of right. it, but the trend is certainly... What growth do the Muslim communities, what, what role does the growth of the Muslim communities in these countries have to do with the growth of these parties? Well, so a lot of this is a reaction to, to the Muslim uh, population, the growth of Muslim population, visibility, etc., but the, <laughs> I think that they would probably exist regardless. They existed before you had a Muslim population, even if not in the numbers, and you see that they play off the reaction to the on the immigration issue, other issues that uh, become even uh, more prominent and, and a rallying points uh, for them. And then you have the radicalism that the Muslim po- is, is, is present in the Muslim populations as well. It's not related to this, but it is of great concern when cities, major cities in Europe, Brussels, I know 35% Muslim, others, in, and amongst those populations. You have increasing radicalization as evidenced by those going to serious evidence by uh, um, reports from Germany, from Scandinavia, from other places where you wouldn't expect it, that, that it's, all, it's being manifest across Europe today. How does it affect the premiership in some of these countries? Uh, do, do, do the prime ministers of these countries or leaders of the countries, whether it be president or prime minister today, do they fear that uh, their own popularity may go down if the popularity of these parties and their government goes up? Yes. In many cases, yes. Even in big countries where sometimes when, you, when 10% of the population or more is, is, um, are Muslims and the, they have to be sensitive before an election, although uh, you know countries like France and, uh, and uh, Italy, others have had very pro-Israel governments, the government of Greece, uh, which is somewhat different has been very pro-israel um, because they are the muslims come but they really use it to transverse into other countries so they come through bulgaria they come through many countries uh, once they're in europe because of the european union they can travel from poland to many countries from hungary to many countries right. but the prime minister of hungary spoke to me about this years ago about the growth of the muslim population his concerns and not because they're Muslim, but because of the radicalization. And, and in France in particular, you see how severe, but we've seen it in England, the plots, the activities. Uh, yeah, that's it. It is another factor in this. Are there Jewish members of the French parliament? I don't know if it's... Sure. There are Jewish members of the French parliament? There are Jewish members of all the parliament. Every European parliament has Jewish members. I don't know if every, but... Yeah, yeah but I'm, you know what I'm Jewish saying. It's, it's, it's not uncommon to find no. Jewish members no, no, of no. European parliament. And speaking uh, of... Pri- the the uh, current prime minister... His wife is Jewish. Uh, if you remember, Sarkozy's uh, right. grandparents were. So while it does get raised, yes, Jews and those of Jewish descent are present. And on the subject of presidents and prime ministers, you know that Prime Minister Netanyahu is correct that it's time to abolish the presidency of Israel, right? I'm not sure. Really? It's not bad. Give me, give me the argument. Give me the argument on the other side to keep it. <clears throat> I think that uh, having somebody who's above politics who can, you know, serve as a figurehead to to represent the state, the country, in uh, in ceremonial and other ways, and can be a unifying force. The prime ministers, because of the system, is always going to be caught in coalition politics right. and intensity. And a president who can uh, unite the people and become uh, someone uh, who can 
serve in, in very many positive uh, ways as an influence, both in government but, but in representing the country. Look, Shimon Peres, whatever reservations some people have about him, the fact is not only his service to the country, but the, in the world as a, as a whole, he is seen as in a very positive and, and constructive uh, way because of his life achievements, his positions, his uh, the way he articulates, you know, nanotechnology and many other things that he has fostered uh, over the years. Uh, you know, so, so if you were asked to decide, you would say keep it? Uh, look, I don't know if it's economically uh, justified, but I certainly think that it serves a positive, it, uh, the presidency can serve a very positive purpose. Do you need to be a native Israeli to be president of Israel, Malcolm? You have to, not native, but you have to be Israeli. Oh, so you're one, uh, you're one citizenship away from, uh, from I like being... I the house, from... and it's in a good location, and has a shul on the ground. <laughs> That's else? right. Yes. I had Levy there on Thanksgiving Day. Kosher kitchen, you know, that's <laughs> Well, you know if you end up in the president's house, you know who's going to be protesting all day long outside. <laughs> One? <laughs> that, that'll be me with my very loud voice. <laughs> I'll find something to yell about, I can tell you that much. How is the defense minister, uh, secretary of defense of the United States, um, uh, uh, greeted in Israel? Tell me about the Netanyahu-Hegel discussion. Well, it, I think as, as a number of people pointed out, it's really strange that Hegel, who there were a lot of reservations, about his appointment as oh, yeah. Secretary of Defense has proven to be uh, very positive uh, and, and gets positive marks. He, he spoke yesterday to a joint uh, American and Israeli forces gathering, uh, Air Force Base. There is a uh, Operation uh, Juniper Cobra 14 going on now. These are really uh, extensive joint maneuvers that take place once or twice a year between American and Israeli troops and involve airplanes, ships, Marines on the ground, and the, uh, serve a very important purpose for both countries, but also in unifying and bringing the, the uh, forces together. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff was, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was recently there as well. So on the military, intelligence, and other levels, they, they are moving ahead. And he made an important statement when he was asked about that stupid story in Newsweek, which is, being increasingly debunked, though we knew it wasn't true about Israel spying, and he said he has no evidence and doesn't know anything about any Israeli spying, because there isn't. And the, the story, it, just to prove how ludicrous these assertions were, they said that the, the only evidence they, they put forward was supposedly took place in a King David hotel room when Al Gore, then vice president, was visiting, and they came there and they found a guy inside the duct, and when he saw them, he crawled back in the duct and disappeared and put back the cover and disappeared. The fact is there are no ducks in the hotel in, in the King David. <laughs> they, it's a small little vent. So unless he was a miniaturized person, he, there's no way that this story had any veracity at all. But the problem is that it gets out there, it, it spreads, and people... Well, yeah, the question is how it starts, from what uh, germ... Well, whether this was deliberate and who, who was behind it. The one guy that they quote, Pilar, has a long history of anti-Israel bias and... Um, some people said it had to do with the discussion of, uh, of the Pollard's release. Other people said it was some incident that occurred. Whatever it is, a story like this is given currency, and then it doesn't die, because once it gets out on the Internet, it gets repeated and repeated and repeated, and it's, uh, it's very hard. The Pope arrives you know, in Israel next weekend, right? Not that's, that's right. In the weekend, he, you know, there's all sorts of controversies uh, about, uh, about the visit because of the... Um, leader of the Orthodox Church in, in 
Beirut wants to come, and the Hezbollah is warning him not to come. Ooh. And, uh, you know, there was an attack on Christians uh, uh, who were celebrating a holiday uh, yet, the day before yesterday, and, and the local Muslims in this Nazareth area threw stones on them. And somebody said, well, they, they, somebody tried to park a car. Others said that, uh, that this was in Bethlehem, actually, that uh, they tried to enter the church, and they were asked to, to stay outside and ended up in this uh, confrontation. And, and also, you see the lack of reaction. There's this pregnant woman in Sudan who married a Christian man, and they, they sentenced her to death. They were going to execute her, but they, they stayed the execution for two years because she was pregnant until she gives birth, because then otherwise they'd be killing the baby. But they gave her four days and say, either you recant your, your religion or you're dead. And yet, you see this, this almost non-reaction to this horrific act. And, and now this woman will sit two years waiting to, to, to be killed, which is also an inhumane uh, uh, development. Maybe, maybe the Prime Minister can uh, give the Pope a few lessons on how Christians should be dealing with threats of terrorism. Well, you know, the Vatican has spoken out on some of these incidents, but certainly there isn't the kind of mobilization and, and outrage, whether it's about the cops, whether it's about people, or the Christians in Nigeria, when we talk about these, right. the situation of the girls. I mean, the Christians have been killed there, and uh, and have done some killing, but the, the overall in, in the, the Middle East, where we see these kind of outrages and the the lack of reaction and, and even the growing acceptance. You know, Iran can carry out all these attacks. Now we see that Zarif, the foreign minister, is being invited to Saudi Arabia, which should send really shockwaves around that people have to understand that this is, I think, a slap at the United States and the West and it's an expression of their frustration and perhaps the fear that, that Iran is going to emerge out of all this. It could be just a show. Um, because Saudi Arabia is very critical of the process between Iran and the P5 plus one and the deal, the interim deal itself. Um, and they've always been the subject of Iranian attacks of late, um, that the Saudi Arabia is conspiring with Israel against Iran. And now they're going to invite this guy, Zarif, the foreign minister, to come there. That would, if that, in fact, does materialize, it would be a, a very significant development. The other one was that a delegation of Russian uh, military just left uh, Egypt, and they announced that they're going to do joint military exercises, Russia and Egypt in the Mediterranean. This, again, is a message to the United States. It's a reaction to, to, to the West, rather, to, to, about the policies that we've been following, about the, 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 um, that they, the, they don't have an interest in switching all of their, their arms purchase and their system to Russia. They did that for many years. But I think that they are trying to send a message. Wow, interesting. All right. Um, by the way, some of the people that every once in a while uh, insist that you come in and take questions from our audience are starting to be heard again. So uh, during the month of June, we may have to uh, we may have to impose on you, Mr. Honeline, to come in and uh, hear everybody yell and scream about Jewish and international issues. Either way, when you talked about uh, first of all, you answer, of course, and second of all, that you saw the poll that sixty-seven percent of Americans side with Israel. In, in about the peace process, about who is responsible, and by uh, into quite uh, a number. Wow! And support the Israeli side versus the third for the Palestinians. That's quite a number. That is a very important number. And now that this issue is coming to a head, and we, we are seeing that they are moving ahead, perhaps on a unity regime, where at least they're saying so. Whether it'll happen, I think is a 
uh, a big difference, but BB said we're going to Abbas, we're going to hold you responsible for every rocket. If you have a unity government, that's right. You are to be held to account. And when that's you talk right. about going to the International Criminal Court, you can be held for all the war crimes and all every Israeli that was killed or injured. Um, and the the uh, the fact is that they're continuing to give these huge stipends to murderers, to terrorists. Once they're caught. They get triple the pay of a, of a policeman on, on duty today in, in the PA. And the members of the, of the government talked about that U.S. aid money is being diverted uh, for, for these purposes. The, uh, so the, uh, they also have taken some steps on the ground in Gaza where they said that they're working to unify the forces or that uh, Arafat and Abbas's houses in Gaza wow. are being turned back over. To A them. real expansion of the PA government. So, it, it, well, they're talking about something by the end of May. Right. I, I can't believe that that's really true. You might have some symbolic gestures, uh, but if that's the case, that's the end of any chance to talk to him. Well, tell Bibi to keep the pressure on. Well, he said that if you tear up the agreement, then maybe there could be some basis to go back, but I think... This thing may have a dynamic that people uh, didn't anticipate. I don't think, again, that you're going to have a unification. I think there's much too much fear of having Hamas right. win in the next election. I think that there's too many vested interests, and Gaza's economic conditions are so terrible. So uh, I, I think we can look at with a little bit of, uh, uh, of skepticism about some of the reports and how they're, they're being portrayed. Right, but if it does happen, it puts Israel... Back into a thing, you know, it's happened before. Right, and it would put Israel in a very interesting position. Malcolm, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Holine is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. It's Friday morning, JM in the AM.